Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we got the debut of a new professional sports league and its implosion all in a matter of days. On Monday, 12 of the world's richest soccer clubs, including the marquee names we all know, like Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, Real Madrid, and Barcelona, announced that they would be leaving the Champions League to form their own breakaway Super League with funding from J.P. Morgan. The plans were met with immediate backlash from fans, politicians, and national leagues, with FIFA vowing to ban any Super League players from World Cup competition. The publicly traded soccer clubs like Juventus and Manchester United got quite a boost on Monday, but for the last few years, they've been relatively flat. So we spoke about it all with Mario Stefanidis, Vice President of Research at Roundhill Investments. Mario actively manages the firm's MVP ETF, which offers investor exposure to the world of sport. We started by asking Mario, what about these teams' structures has failed to capture investor attention before now? I think a part of it that really has depressed the long-term performance was due to COVID. And these teams really didn't have streaming strategies, these teams really relied on merchandise and ticket sales hmm. um, for a large part of their revenue. And I think part of the rally that you're seeing now is this revolution, um, not only due to this new formation of a Super League, but due to the increase in uh, media rights and uh, licensing fees that a lot of these teams are able to command. Um, so you're right, the long-term performance of these teams hasn't been great, but I think if this Super League really comes to fruition, I, I think this is uh, a great growth opportunity for um, European soccer clubs. Is there any sort of sense here, though, that this would actually alienate fans in any sort of way? Because there's going to be a lot of griping. But as we've seen here, as particularly in sports in the U.S., which already has kind of that similar type of system as to what they're trying to create over there, fans always seem to always gravitate back no matter what sort of changes happen that they don't like. Yeah, that's a great point. I think your hardcore fan might be a little dissuaded by this whole thing. But when you think of your casual fan, I mean, what better than a league where teams, the top teams are competing on a weekly basis against each other? That previously didn't exist before. The Champions League is an annual affair, an annual tournament. This is going to be a regular season uh, on par with what we see in the U.S. with the MLB, with the NFL, fixed teams uh, that are predictably uh, uh, battling each other every year. What's interesting, I mean, Comcast fell a bit, which owns Sky over here, but BT Group didn't, and they own the sports channel. Why are they not hurting more from this, Mario? I, I think it's still taking time to process. Um, some people on the street think this is just a gambit to try to solicit uh, higher licensing fees from existing agreements. Um, BT, I, they had paid about one and a half billion pounds uh, for the rights to stream uh, Champions League and UEFA games. Um, the economics might shift, will shift more towards the teams after this, no matter what. But it's still to be seen whether this whole league will come to fruition and result in a clean breakaway or whether this is just a negotiating tactic 
um, to retain more of the economics behind the sponsorships and the licensing deals. So, Mario, one of the uh, things that people say is that the, it's hard to run these teams uh, to have a shareholder focus, that there is huge, uh, you know, obviously a huge amount of money has to go to the players, those transfer fees, uh, that really is where the value goes, that, uh, you know, the, you have to run them for the fans, the supporters of the clubs, that takes away from the ability. Structurally, is there a problem with publicly traded uh, football teams in Europe? to run them for maximizing shareholder value, or is it just a matter of getting the business model right? I, I, I think, um, you know, when you, when you look at some of these contracts and the amount players are being compensated per game, uh, football, European football is way at the top. When it comes to baseball, these are some of the largest contracts, but players are playing 162 games in a regular season. Um, with this new structure, you're going to have a magnitude more games being played and the economics are really going to become more favorable for these teams. I mean, let's talk about the, the idea so of investing though in this. I mean, obviously you have the MVP uh, ETF here. Uh, you know, there are a lot and obviously I know it's more than just sports teams in there, but when you talk about sort of trying to invest uh, on a sports team, it, it seems like you're still kind of at the whim as to whether those teams win, whether they do it consistently, and if they don't, I mean, I mean, how do you sort of make that judgment call as to sort of what makes a good investment or not when you're not really dealing with the normal fundamentals uh, that you would be doing with a, with a different type of investment? Yeah, so we're not necessarily um, managing the portfolio on a fundamental basis. We're just looking to give our shareholders beta exposure to this world of pro sports. So the portfolio is about 60% pro sports teams, and then the balance is apparel companies, media companies, um, all in this ecosystem. And I think by offering a diversified basket, uh, we're not really betting on whether these teams are going to have a successful season or not. It's the aggregate and right. the aggregate uh, increases in franchise values that we've seen over the last decade that it, uh, I think can generate uh, long-term returns for this fund. I mean, uh, you look at franchise value for NFL, NBA, MLB, and Premier League. From 2011 to 2020, these franchise values increased by 500%, which is wow. more than broad equities. Um, these franchises are premium and scarce assets, and I think by giving people a diversified basket of, of, of these securities, um, they're able to invest alongside the teams they know and love. Now this week, we got some surprising new data on the red-hot U.S. housing market. In March, the momentum we've seen in the housing market faded, with sales of previously owned homes falling to a seven-month low as a surge in prices and the lack of available properties limited potential buyers. Lawrence Young, the National Association of Realtors chief economist, put the blame on the severe lack of supply and said the demand is still very much there. Ahead of that data release, we caught up with Ali Wolf, the chief economist at Zonda, a housing market research and real estate analytics firm. And we started by asking Ali if there's anything that can be done to curb the momentum in housing. On the demand side? Yeah. No. So thanks for having me. And housing is it's crazy. I could pick up a dart and throw it at a map of the U.S. and I'd be betting money that whatever market it landed on, that housing market is going through a boom. So it is universal across geography. It's universal across price point and buyer group from entry level all the way up to the ultra luxury doing really, really well. All right. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, so it's going well, but a lot of people then they look at the rate environment and they say, OK, rates are ticking up. I know it's not nothing crazy yet, but once you come off the floor, that sort of scoops spooks some people. Then there's just the whole issue here of, uh, I guess, availability and affordability and that that's actually crimping uh, ultimate, ultimately crimping sales as well. How do you factor that into your general outlook, Allie? 
Yep. So it's a great question. And the interesting thing about housing is there are top line prices. So that's the price that you see when you're on Zillow or when you're on Redfin. And when you're looking at that, that makes housing look incredibly expensive. But we know that housing is a monthly payment business for the consumer. And we've run the numbers. And with interest rates, yes, they're off from the floor, but they're still lower than where they were last year. The monthly payment is still down. And so there are some consumers that are savvy enough to recognize that and say, well, I want to jump in. And that's creating that extra feverish pace today that people are saying, I got to get in now. I got to get in now. Uh, the issue is, of course, that interest rates are likely going to go up. And if you're a builder and you're signing a contract today, the lead time until someone can get that home has now become extended. We've heard up to 15 months. Wow. That poses interest rate risk. Huh. 15 months. Is that on the back of a supply side issue in terms of lumber, in terms of building materials? What, why the big disconnect? Yes. Yeah, so I, I smile because the answer is it's everything. So it starts at supply side issues. 89% of builders are saying supply side issues are going to impact their ability to get homes delivered. Then you have government delays. And this is not the government's fault. Local jurisdictions, they didn't think housing was going to be this hot. Builders didn't think housing was going to be this hot. And so the governments are scrambling to get permits done, to get entitlements done. Labor, do you remember all we talked about in 2019 was a labor shortage? Mm -hmm. You almost never hear about it now because lumber is taking the front the front stage. And then, of course, land. So there's just a lot of factors working against the builders. Ellie, did the, does the price of lumber matter at all? Or is it literally just about whether the builders can find the wood? Huh. So... The price of lumber does matter because we're thinking longer term. If you are talking 15 months from now and you're talking potentially interest rates go up, well, you have to have someone that's going to be able to purchase the home at that higher price. For now, I texted with uh, a CEO of one of the biggest home builders yesterday and I said, OK, what's what workaround have you found? And he said, there's no workaround. We're going to try to be a little bit more efficient to the extent that that's going to help. Some builders are trying to warehouse lumber, so saying, at least I know what my costs are. But in a lot of cases, builders are just raising prices yeah. and consumers saying, okay. I'm curious about some yeah. of the other inflationary pressures there beyond lumber, because we've heard, at least anecdotally, some concerns about uh, the costs of things like insulation and flooring and appliances and, thing, and on some of the other components that go into the final product here of a home here. Uh, what are we seeing on that and how are uh, builders addressing it? Yep. So another great question. And as you look at it, we so to step back, 98 percent of builders raise prices month over month. And when you look at the numbers, this is according to Zonda data, 50 percent raised prices, ten thousand dollars or more. Now, that's an average. I've heard of home prices going up two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in six weeks. So Ooh. it really depends on the market. It's crazy. So to answer your question, Romaine, What's happening is lumber's going up, uh, insulation's going up, stucco's going up, concrete's going up, and that's getting passed on to the consumer. And one thing I want to note is right before I got on this call with you guys, I was talking to my friend. He's a building supplier, and he said they held off raising prices because they knew that builders are just getting pummeled left, right, and center, but resin is now in short supply. And he's a cabinet supplier, and he said he finally had to go mm -hmm. back to builders and say, I'm sorry, but we can't continue to eat these costs. 
it's getting kind of niche. I mean, it was interesting that today Canaccord analyst was out saying, look, maybe downgrade your outlook for lumber equities because they think eventually the R&D is going to come in, the capex is going to come in, we will get a supply side bump. So we've seen as high as it gets. But Ali, I want to go back to what you're saying in terms of the throwing the dart thing. Is that true now with cities as well, vis-a-vis -vis getting out to the suburbs, where a few months ago it was all about the urban flight? Is that not the case now? Are house prices through the roof when they are looking to move to Manhattan or indeed the burbs? Yep. So two data points on that. So the first is we look at our Zonda database. We track actively selling communities and we see that 70 percent of the best selling communities are now 25 plus miles from a central business district. That's 70 compared to 30 percent of the best selling communities further away from downtown last year. So you're definitely seeing more interest in the suburbs. But I'll say firsthand, I've gone out and toured markets in uh, places like Los Angeles. I've talked to builders who are selling along the silver line in Washington, D.C., and they say, all the articles tell me I need to be freaked out about demand, but people keep coming. People keep signing contracts. Mm. So I do think there are some parts of the cities, if the price has gone too high, uh, that people may balk at that and maybe they can get an incentive from a builder. But I, I do really hold to that the demand is, is universal. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And we wrapped up the week with a wide-ranging conversation with New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman. We started on the economy and the widespread optimism and the bit of concern that's growing from inflation, of course, from all the typical corners. So I started by asking Professor Krugman if there's anything that worries him. Well, I'm still not entirely sure that we've got the pandemic under control. You know, we think we've got it, but a little bit alarming. And look, I, I am... Um, we are, let's put it this way, Larry Summers is not being completely uh, foolish here. There is a, it, it's a lot of money that we're throwing at the economy and uh, it could be, it, it could be a problem, although I, I think we have ways to deal with it. But uh, so we, we're giving a really big boost to the, to things right now. I, I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic, but, but there's always some, hmm. there's both downside and upside risk. Both, uh, both that you know, pandemic hits us again, or that uh, this thing goes too fast, and you know, we're starting to see bottlenecks. Things, uh, there are a lot of problems with with uh, a rapid recovery when we still have disrupted supply right. chains. So this could be, a, no, it's not going to be totally smooth sailing. Well, I am curious, when you look at the supply chains, we've been talking a lot about some of the inflationary pressures yeah. out there, whether it's in some of the commodities or now in some of the consumer staples here. Some of that, of course, is sort of tied to uh, the economy sort of reheating, but a lot of that is also tied here to the disruptions that we had because of COVID. And I'm wondering if maybe that uh, if, we, if you consider some of those disruptions to be temporary, that the inflationary pressures might not be as heavy as some people think. Yeah, I think it's going to be important, and I, I think the people at the Fed know this, that it, core inflation is actually not a sufficient, a sufficient statistic here. Uh, that even, uh, you know, normally we think that, okay, this transitory stuff is basically food and energy, but now there's going to be transitory shortages. Well, you know, we have uh, chips, uh, lumber, 
the, uh, there's a shortage of containers. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of unusual disruptions, all of which is not fundamental. Uh, all of which doesn't mean that we actually are seeing an up, uh, a rise in underlying inflation. It just means that we're hitting some, some bottlenecks as we come back from a, a highly disrupted economy and stuff that should be disregarded in, in terms of setting policy. And so we're to don't panic. We all have big buttons that say don't panic uh, on the inflation <laughs> front. Setting policy from a monetary policy front there when it comes to inflation, when it comes to labor data. But there's also, of course, yeah. what the government is up to. And asset prices, well, maybe a bit of inflationary pressure took a leg down today because they were worried about capital gains taxes coming forward. What do you think about the inevitability or not of tax increases and what it means for the overall economy? Hmm. Well, yeah, there's going to be, I mean, that's a little bit weird, right? We had, uh, this is something that Biden had said all along he was going to try to do. And now he says, I'm going to try to do what I promised I was going to do in the market. Although, you know, we, we get, uh, if, if a 1% fall in stock prices is is all that you get from a really major <laughs> increase in capital gains taxes, that's that's not a big problem. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the Biden has an ambitious agenda. Um, we have a, some fiscal space. Interest rates are extremely low. We have learned that debt fears are exaggerated, but we don't have infinite fiscal space. So some significant tax increases are going to be part of the story. Um, and Biden is trying to do those with not hitting the middle class at all. So it's supposed to be corporate taxes and then high taxes, high incomes, capital gains. Um, it's a, but something like that is, is pretty much inevitable unless everything is, you know, fails. Uh, it, you could still this stuff could still stumble in Congress. It's possible still that that uh, you know they, they they need all 50 senators, but plus Kamala Harris to pass any of this stuff. But but assuming that they're going to get through with this stuff, they are going to need some taxes to pay for at least part of it. Paul, you say that we don't have infinite fiscal space, but of course, at least we appear to have a lot more than maybe people would have guessed uh, several years ago. We have really big deficits, and for a long time, not much inflation. Yeah. Does your field? have a good way of measuring or estimating how much fiscal space we have? Uh, no, we don't. I mean, the, the, um, I mean, the best thing that we have is just to actually ask uh, what, how much, uh, we, we have some notion of what, what would it take to stabilize the ratio of debt to GDP, uh, but no idea of what the the maximum number is. It's really hard to find any examples of hitting that maximum, and at least for a country like the United States that borrows in its own currency and is regarded as as fundamentally as a sound, responsible country. So it's not clear that there's any pressing limit. There's a much more obvious thing, which is inflation. If you are going to overheat the economy, uh, then that's functional finance. If you say, what, how much spending is too much for us to have the capacity to meet the demand? But then we have monetary policy to contain all of that. So the, the only thing we can really say is that wherever the limits to debt are, they appear to be quite some ways off. Uh, there have advanced countries yeah. have run levels of debt to GDP that are 100 points higher than where we are without having a crisis. And so there's nothing, right. there's no visible constraint on us right now, except that, except that if you know if we're going to be running persistent deficits of 10% of GDP, that's not going to be doable uh, just because of the inflationary pressure. But it's it's amazing how much people manage to convince themselves that 
that there was a red line that we can't cross somewhere, 90% of GDP, 150% of GDP, none of those things are actually borne out by the historical evidence. So if we ever do get to a point where we can sort of visibly see what that level is, what that line of the sand is, uh, what's the reaction function, yeah. function, or more importantly, how fast can that reaction function uh, sort of work to sort of alleviate uh, the fallout from that? Well, you know, we have a, being, a, again, a country that borrows in our own currency, we have, uh, it's really hard. I, I actually tried to, uh, in the past, I tried to model uh, what a, a crisis could look like. How, how could you even have a fast-moving crisis for a country like the United States? And you, look, you try to find a historical example that actually, of a country that in any way looks like us, where there have been cases where people have lost some confidence in the, in the government's willingness to pay its bills. Uh, but all that happens under those circumstances is that the currency weakens, which is not the worst thing in the world. The closest you can get is you can go to France in 1926, and they had a, a fear that they weren't actually going to be willing to pay off their debts from World War I. Um, but nothing really terrible happened. The finance minister lost his job, but nothing really terrible happened to the real economy. And I think the same is true for us now. Paul, one topic that people are talking a lot about these days is you yourself, Paul Krugman. There was a big uh, Adam II's essay on your intellectual evolution, I guess you would yeah. describe it. And there's actually, you know, people are noticing that there's sort of a difference emerging between, say, your views on certain things and Larry Summers, who you mentioned last time. Do you, have an, do you think it's an, born out of an ideological disagreement or are you operating from the same toolkit and just coming to different conclusions on things like inflation, stimulus, and so forth? Uh, we have very much the same toolkit. I mean, Larry and I essentially had the same teachers, have essentially looked at the world the same way. Um, and I, I think we're just somehow, I, I have to admit, I'm a little puzzled. I mean, I, I understand the worry that, the stim, that we're doing more stimulus than we need. And I'd say, well, it's not really stimulus, but still, that we're, we're throwing a lot of money at the economy. I don't understand why Larry thinks that monetary policy can't be used to stabilize inflation. That seems to me to be the, a, a new principle that I hadn't heard before. But, uh, but look, it's, uh, uh, economics is not an exact science. And smart people... Uh, even smart people who have the same general framework can mm. come to the data and reach different conclusions. Uh, and if, if some of the conclusions seem awfully vehement, well, you know, if, if you're not going to stand up for your conclusions, who will? Paul, is there a difference in prioritization, perhaps, as well? Obviously, a lot of central banks out there are primarily focused on inflation, but the U.S. has this dual mandate labor market and inflation and more and more it becomes a labor market yeah. for everyone not just the few and i'm interested as to whether that nuance is something that certain economists aren't quite aligned with no i don't think well i got i mean i i, I can't psychoanalyze uh, i mean but it's, it's not just larry summers olivier blanchard uh, right. former chief economist of the imf and uh, is also concerned that we're overdoing it. Um, and it, this is really, I mean, I would say that, that part of the question is what you, there are risks on all sides, which of them do you think are biggest? And I at least was very much, uh, I, I went through, I, I spent a, a months, years, shouting into the wind over fiscal policies of the Obama administration. 
And my sense was that they, they missed a, not just an economic window, but they missed a political window by going too, uh, too small at the beginning. They uh, ended up, it, you know, half a loaf ended up being politically worse than none because then people say, oh, you tried stimulus, it didn't work. And so there, there was a terrible, uh, we, we paid a price for, for many years. We're still in some ways paying a price for that underpowered fiscal policy. So I'm in the go big school. Uh, and um, as that news, as I said, right, this is uh, now I've got an administration that's doing things the way I would have wanted Obama to do it. And so I'm high on it. Maybe others who don't didn't have exactly the same life trajectory will will come up with a different set of priorities. But I, you know, I but I'm really pretty vehement on that. The, this is the chance. You've got a what's very likely a transitory uh, Democratic, you know, razor thin and transitory Democratic control of Congress. Uh, this is the chance to get a lot of stuff done, and you have to take some risks of, of, of yeah. going big in order to do that. Well, so far, of course, in these first 100 days, we have seen uh, Biden at least try to go big here. I am curious about trade policy here, something that uh, he is just now starting to address, uh, something that is, of course, is an issue that's been lingering now through several administrations. And I'm wondering, does it matter? Is it as critical now as it might have been, say, eight years ago or, you know, 16 years ago? Actually, trade policy has always been overrated. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I say that as somebody who's spent a large part of his life working on trade policy, but it's one of those issues where the, the closer you are to the subject, the less melodramatic you get about how much it matters. The difference between 2% and 4% tariffs is not a big deal. It's, uh, it, there, it's just not, the, the U.S. trade policy has not been an important factor for our economy uh, as a whole for a, a long time. It's, it's big for particular sectors, but really for the economy as a whole, it's not a big deal. Um, and that's a good thing because I think that we're really, Biden is, is not really rolling back, uh, you know, everything Trump did. Uh, they're, they'll probably end up, I hope that we'll end up, you know, we'll stop imposing national security tariffs on Canada. But uh, are we going to see a return to the kind of pro-globalism agenda that, uh, that, Took place in, in in the past. I don't think so. Um, the uh, there it, it's it's not that important, but it's also politically. The Trump sort of created facts. Uh, the nobody, given everything else on his plate, why would the Biden administration take the risk of being seen as soft on China? So uh, in in a lot of ways, we're I think we have had a a permanent turn away. We're not going to have any big new trade agreements for the foreseeable future. We're probably not even going to unwind all that many of the Trump tariffs. Uh, but luckily, that's, it's not that critical. So was the opening up, the globalization, not that big of a deal either? I mean, if the turn away is not that big of a deal, all that stuff, China entering the WTO, and when we were, we were in the globalization mood, was that all overstated in terms of its impact on anything? Well, not really. There's, there's a difference between tariff policy and um, and things, te technological developments that enable greater globalization. So most of the rise, we had an extraordinary, you know, as of 1980, world trade as a share of GDP was basically the same as it was in 1913. All of the, everything that happened up to that point was really just a recovery to where things had been before the world wars. Um, but the surge in trade that took place after that, hyper-globalization, that mattered quite a lot. You can try to do estimates. It, it significantly added to global growth. But that's largely because a lot of that was not about, really, it wasn't mostly just about reducing tariffs. Tariffs were already pretty low by the 1980s. It was about 
finally learning what to do with container ships, about learning to manage these global supply chains. And that mattered a lot, and particularly it mattered for developing countries, but even for countries like the United States, that was a significant gain. And that's not going away. When we talk about globalization stalling out, slobalization is the IMF's term for it. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about rolling back. We're not talking about going back to the world as it was in 1975. We're talking about not having trade, having made trade grow a little bit more slowly than GDP instead of much faster than GDP in, in the decade ahead. Um, and the, the point is that that change is not a huge deal. It's, it's not to say that globalization didn't matter, although, again, it's, it, people get, you know, global loaning, I guess was the old term, people yeah. like to talk about that stuff because it sounds important, and, but sometimes it is, but it's, but trade policy per se, right. tariffs, within the range that we're seeing is just not that big a deal. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.